of leading international contemporary art magazine, Art Review, which recently launched a sister publication in Asia. He's joined this evening by J.J. Charlesworth, associate editor of the same publication. Tonight, they asked the question, what's the point of contemporary art? I would like to remind you that this evening's lecture is being recorded and that the podcast will be available for download tomorrow on the LSE events website. For those of you who want to tweet during the lecture, the hashtag is LSEart. Uh, We will also be taking questions at the end, so please, if you could kindly hold on to them until the end, that would be great. Finally, if you want to join us for a drink afterwards, we'll be heading to the George IV pub in the middle of the LSE campus. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Thank you. Um, This is a slightly different format, or it's a slightly original format, in as much as we're going to talk in conversation. Uh, But we realize, of course, that the way in which this uh, room is set up means that if we were to sit, uh, most of you would not be able to see, or people over here would not necessarily be able to see uh, uh, one or other of us. Um, so, and we work in a visual culture. And we work in a visual culture, which means, which is, of course, why we have decided to walk up and down a lot, uh, like in those TED Talks. Um, we're not trying to sell you an iPhone. Um, so, uh, the title is, uh, well, Lecture, Conversation, uh, is what is the point of contemporary art. It's not meant as a title for a, a talk. It's not meant as a negative or a... Uh, pejorative uh, question. I mean, it off- offers itself as, uh, my goodness, what could be possibly the point today? There's, there is no point to art. And I think there are a lot of cynical uh, assumptions about um, what contemporary art is today, which I suspect you'll uh, find uh, better articulated by perhaps Grayson Perry if you're listening to the current Wreath lectures. We're not going to try and do that. Um, there's two of us and neither of us is an address. Uh, so what we are going to do is, uh, first of all, set out a few um, points of reference by using some pictures um, for some of the themes that we're going to want to talk about this evening. And then what we'll start to do is uh, converse, have a conversation, hopefully trying to completely ignore you as if we were uh, uh, in a pub having a conversation because this is something that Mark and I tend to do quite a lot, not necessarily just in the pub, but also uh, mostly at the magazine. Uh, Art Review, uh, if you're not familiar with it, uh, has been going on since, has been published since, as a title since, uh, I think, 1947? 49. 49, sorry. Uh, has, has gone through many, many uh, changes of uh, identity and metamorphoses of editorial uh, perspective. Since 2006, we have been working with, uh, as Art Review uh, and have tried to develop a different way of uh, thinking about contemporary art, which allows us to talk to the people who are already very interested in it and uh, start to talk to the people who uh, are curious about it and want to know more but are not necessarily uh, clear about uh, why they should be interested or care. So as a magazine, we try to face uh, in many directions. And one thing that we have noticed, uh, especially in the last year, partly because this uh, November we publish, uh, each November we publish a, a special edition of the magazine called The Power 100 List, um, in which we uh, try to uh, ascertain who the 100 most powerful people are in the whole of the art world, uh, which is no mean feat, and we usually uh, don't necessarily get it absolutely right. 
But the one thing that we have noticed, especially this year, in the run-up to it and also looking over what we have been doing for the last year and looking at how uh, the, art, the activity of contemporary art has been uh, for the last uh, 12 months, uh, we've started to notice certain kinds of trends. And these things uh, both uh, in- interest us, uh, slightly uh, perplex us, and sometimes worry us. Uh, trends that people may have not uh, noticed taking shape. Pe- uh, trends that people might think uh, are just the way things have always been. Uh, and so one of the things we try to do is to take some perspective on the changes which are taking place in this thing called contemporary art. Um, uh, both in a kind of short space of time, maybe uh, two to five years, and also looking at on a longer um, basis, on a 10-year or a 20-year or an even a kind of generational basis, uh, because we think that uh, something has started to uh, change quite significantly. Uh, the forces that are driving those changes are, are manifold, and we uh, are not always clear that we have got the, uh, the measure of them completely. But in order to kind of kick this off, we're going to uh, roll through a few few of what we might think are sort of significant events, images that are are perhaps representative uh, of things that have happened, uh, things that we should take notice of, and things that we should try to think about in terms of what they mean. And at the same time, it's kind of a diary of the year in the life of someone who's interested in contemporary arts and the kind of things they're going to see and the kind of events they're going to attend. So, Mark, what is this? This is Jay-Z doing Picasso Baby at Pace Gallery in New York. Does everybody know who uh, Jay-Z is? (laughs) Well, that's kind of... I mean, everybody giggles, but, of course, that's kind of one of the issues that uh, we're starting to notice. Um, This is uh, someone called James Franco, uh, who is at an art fair... Is it Freeze, wasn't he? It's at Freeze, New yeah. York. Freeze, um, New York, that, uh, earlier this year. At which point he also became one of our contributors. Um, yes. There's an increasing crossover, I think, between the worlds of Hollywood and the worlds of contemporary art. Um, what the one wants from the other is, is always a difficult thing to say, but um, I think, like fashion, it's got a lot to do with art being seen as a kind of a permanent thing, whereas celebrity and fashion and trends are temporary things. So you find there's a lot of, now a lot of crossover with people wanting to build a monument for themselves by involvement in art. This is uh, the splendid Beyoncé uh, taking a picture of uh, some art at an art fair. This is um, I was Kanye West. Kanye West at uh, uh, Design Basel. He was so moved by the works he saw in the art fair that he decided to do an impromptu performance afterwards. Of his new album. Yeah, which was out the next day. <laughs> Again, uh, uh, there's a cynicism, wave of cynicism rippling through the audience here. I think we should take it seriously. I think we should be light-hearted about it. But there's uh, something curious about this. It may be trivial. It may be uh, disposable. But I think something that Mark, Mark is pointing out is that, uh, well, the world of pop culture and the world of um, mass culture uh, has always had a kind of love-hate or, or strange relationship to, to this thing called art, and certainly these, th- these people called artists. Uh, and what is interesting is that maybe these are symptoms of uh, a kind of crescendo in the way in which uh, celebrity culture uh, is starting to identify a problem about itself, 
that celebrities somehow want, uh, I'm not sure, a, degree, a different degree of uh, recognition or a different type of recognition about what they do, um, so that they tend to gravitate more and more uh, to this peculiar space called the art world, uh, its artists, and also the, the idea of being a creative practitioner within it, as well as, of course, uh, being so loaded that they will uh, buy a lot of the work, which has a significant effect on the way in which art itself uh, ends up uh, being made and sold. There's also still the attraction of um, art being a kind of very permissive zone in which sex and drugs and everything else is okay which attracts a lot of people to it at the same time. When we were at the art fair in Basel this summer, um, I was talking to quite a big New York collector. Well, next to us, a French artist who was trying to drink the bottle of vodka he'd stolen from the bar whilst um, groping the girl he intended to spend the night with fell past us down the stairs and collapsed in a heap on the floor. And the collector said, wow, what a great artist. Um, And I met the collector later on in his apartment in New York where he'd purchased one of the artist's work. And then he continued to recount the same story while saying, this is the kind of thing I hang out with all the time. This is my life. Even though in reality, he's a banker and doesn't need that kind of life at all. I mean, part of the problem, of course, is that artists themselves are becoming celebrities. Now, this doesn't need... You don't need us to tell you this, but... um, this is uh, the splendid uh, French performance and body artist Orlan, um, who uh, recently um, got a bit annoyed with uh, Lady Gaga um, because she felt that this uh, sequence or this uh, part of a Lady Gaga video for, I think it's Born This Way, is it? Shows what I know. Um, pl- effectively plagiarizes a sequence from a, a, a much earlier video by Orlan. Um, but in a way, one, of course, steps back from that and says, well, uh, this is what happens when artists take on the status of public figure. It's only normal to uh, realize, or it's, it's almost inevitable to, to kind of notice that by becoming celebrities, celebrities also want to be with them. And I think there is an issue here uh, that points to not so, so much celebrity culture, but in, in a way the economy uh, that celebrity culture used to uh, or continues to represent, which is to say that if you have the kind of uh, money, the kind of income, the kind of uh, clout that a lot of uh, top artists, visual artists, contemporary artists now start to accrue, because of the money which they make from a very changed uh, art market and art economy, um, it is normal, it would be, it's predictable to, to recognize that, um, it's predictable to, to see that they become part of the celebrity world and that celebrity culture, which is coming from different art forms, music, fashion, and so on, uh, becomes increasingly synonymous with them. Yeah. I think it's also related to the um, increasing prevalence of the term art world, which we find used a lot at the moment. Um, which, on the one hand, seems to imply that there's a, a bigger audience for contemporary art, and on the other hand, is designed to exclude people who aren't from the art world, who are maybe from the fashion world, the design world, the world of finance, as not belonging to this world. And that's the big, one of the big conflicts contemporary art has at the moment, of wanting to be global, increasing the money that funds it comes from everywhere around the world, South America in particular, and the Middle East, and the Gulf states. Um, 
So it's growing and it's going global, but people want to protect some sort of sense of exclusivity and want to keep people out as much as they want to keep people in. That's a point which I'm going to take Mark up on a bit because I'm not sure. I'm, I would like to know more about what you mean about uh, this form of exclusiv- exclusivity. Um, I'm going to skip over these guys for a moment because let's just go back. Yeah, let's just pop in here. I mean, I think to co- we'll come back to exclusi- exclusivity uh, in a moment, I think. But um, can we then move or talk for a moment about uh, economies? Because you just mentioned the idea of uh, the global and of globalization. Now, it strikes me, and this is another kind of... Uh, Discussion point or a trend point that we we're struggling with, we grapple with all the time in the magazine because we are a London-based magazine looking out to um, the rest of the world, and now because we have a Asia edition uh, looking out to that particular region, uh, we find ourselves having to think about uh, the economy of a system which now operates almost uh, identically in all parts of uh, the world, in as much as as we see uh, emerging economies develop or emerging economic regions uh, grow in presence and status, uh, we also notice uh, that contemporary art seems to track it and seems to follow its, uh, that course in a certain way. Now, this has implications that we'll possibly come back to about what we mean by uh, an art which... Uh, about what we mean by art which has a uh, connection to its locality. But in terms of uh, that changing economy, uh, do you want to drop in with a few ideas there? Well, I think I mean, one good example... Of, I'm not actually based in London, to come back on that, so um, perhaps we have different perspectives, but um, one a good example would be the Tate Gallery, which, for instance, has an, a curator who specialises in African arts appointed... A year, just over a year ago, who's sponsored, whose position is sponsored by a Nigerian bank that doesn't sponsor any art museums in Nigeria. Um, so it's this kind of sense of certain art centres becoming, becoming global centres for economy that wants to invest in art without the art world actually becoming more global as a result of it. I mean, what's interesting about this issue is that we start to notice that... Um, and I guess this is about this is something to do with perhaps one of the key terms which we're sort of sliding around, which is the art world. Um, the art world is not art. The art world is not artists. Um, the art world is, is a set of um, combinations of institutions, economies, people, uh, policies, state institutions, commercial institutions. The fact that this thing has actually turned up as the art world, this thing called the art world, is new. Uh, It's noticeable, because I've been listening to Grayson Perry a lot on the radio, because he he turns up at the right time of the day. Um, I've noticed that although I find him not necessarily that uh, kind of original in his uh, thinking, what's very noticeable about his language is his use and his attention to this thing called the art world. 
Um, and I, although he talks about the past and the present as if they were uh, continuous, uh, I'd be more, I'm more interested in thinking uh, specifically about why exactly this term has, turn, has turned up in the way it has done. It has, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago or a generation ago, it would have been less evident that people talked about the art world. It would be more evident that people talked about artists and art and the uh, work which was presented in institutions like museums and galleries. But something that we notice in all this kind of combination of different new elements uh, comes together around this uh, term, the art world. And that means it's, it's, no, it's no accident that we have uh, a the vernacular usage of this term, of this phrase coming up, because it has something to do with the way in which uh, economies produce culture, the way in which uh, economies have become uh, interconnected under the uh, dynamic of what people call globalization. Um, It means that we have a, a setup which is somehow tied together at the international level because we notice institutions that present art talk to each other or communicate with each other in a particular way. But it also means that uh, it becomes this entity. We, uh, we're kind of trying to think this one through at the moment. The art world has become uh, an entity which is somehow separate uh, from questions of national or local culture. Yeah. I mean, it's about as much about consumption as production. Um, that's a new museum in Qatar that's going to open next year and Qatar's currently hosting an exhibition of Damien Hirst which is based on the one that was at Tate a year ago which the Qatar Museum's Authority sponsored and one of the questions we're asking ourselves a lot is um, I don't know if anyone's been to Doha but it is essentially a place in the middle of a desert um, is what showing Damien Hurst in Doha means. What's the purpose? Who's the audience? What's it for? Other than the fact that the Museum's Authority owns several Damien Hursts, um, what's the point of showing it there? How does it transfer? Does it transfer because it's absolutely without meaning? Or does it transfer because it has meanings that can travel? And what does that mean about an artist who I think most of us associate with documenting 1990s British culture? and the rise of sort of markets and uh, the economic recovery then. If, um, if we just step back... I'll just, I'll just use this one to uh, follow up on that point. Um, Anish Kapoor is here. Uh, I forget if this is his Gangnam style. Yes, yeah. Uh, retake or remake which, is, which was effectively done in order to support uh, Ai Weiwei uh, a Chinese artist who has been uh, given a great deal of uh, quite a serious hard time by the Chinese authorities for his uh, work and his international profile uh, on issues which uh, the Chinese government would rather uh, not uh, be attended to but um, what we notice there is that uh, the ideas that are at stake um, between, say, someone like Ai Weiwei and uh, Anish Kapoor may seem very uh, uh, disconnected. There may, may not be a straight connection between the kind of um, 
idealized uh, forms of sculpture which someone like Anish Kapoor has de- developed, a, a kind of sculpture which is uh, very, much, very much abstract, which has a very particular uh, take on uh, experience, uh, visual experience, bodily experience, uh, which draws in materials from his, uh, pers- his background, his cultural background, which putatively would be an Indian background. Um, but which, which addresses itself or is capable of addressing itself uh, in a very uh, universal way, which is to say uh, it's art which is able to be presented in many places uh, without maybe the, um, the grain of it or the, the, the sense of it uh, being opaque uh, as long as it's explained in some very loose, uh, very general terms. Ai Weiwei, by, by contrast, is someone who appears uh, as an artist who presents work which has a direct link to uh, a national situation and to cont- political and social contexts. And yet what is interesting, of course, is that he is an artist who um, has become projected on an international stage, uh, precisely because of the ideas that um, he uh, campaigns on or, or celebrates or, or, or fosters in, in his work. Um, now those two, I would suggest, are somehow um, interconnected or seem to be actually in relationship to each other. So that an artist who is apparently dealing with issues that apply particularly to a uh, locality or to a national context, a social debate and a social discourse which is particular to China, the Chinese experience, political experience today, Um, nevertheless uh, becomes something which everybody finds legible uh, on an international stage. The flip side is that someone like uh, Anish Kapoor um, produces work which has become translatable, or rather has become a kind of, uh, we sometimes call it a sort of art world Esperanto. And and certainly this issue of the the translatability and the um, transferability of contemporary art is very important. So that someone like Damien Hirst um, whilst he came out of uh, a very particular moment in British cultural life and social life and addressed, and as one of the so-called young British artists addressed um, a, a notion of uh, the everyday, uh, life in the everyday, life lived in, uh, in the kind of the vernacular of popular British culture, he has then somehow... Segwayed rather sort of uh, uh, smoothly into having a an international status. Now I think that's not it's not the case that artists have always been uh, constrained or trammeled by their locality or their nationality. That's not true. But what is interesting is that uh, the mechanism of the art world allows for a different kind of smooth transition, and I think that's an important point. There's something underneath that. Uh, which is significant. So this is a slide of um, this summer's Art Basel, which is the, um, I guess, the most lucrative art fair for contemporary arts in the world. And the kind of hordes of people descending on it. This hall is enormous. Um, and you kind of wonder at this point who it's for because the price tags on most of the works there start in six figures. Um, and um, it, it attracts a diverse crowd of collectors from around the world, um, curators who are looking for the latest idea, perhaps from what's selling, perhaps from what's not. 
um, and artists who are looking to see what the market is dictating to them. And this issue of the market starts to come into it when you have institutions today, even our public institutions which are largely privately funded. So there for me the question becomes, well, who exactly is this work for? Yeah. Right? And this is not insignificant because I think we, uh, we tend to spectate the art world, right? Not just us, but lots of people, an ordinary general public, people who are not necessarily buying, not necessarily um, uh, closely implicated in uh, the goings-on of um, this thing called the art world, nevertheless are an audience. The general public is an audience for this. The reason that Tate Modern is expanding, almost, I think, doubling its uh, floor space capacity uh, by its uh, new extension, which should be built, I think, what, in about 18 months' time, two years' time, uh, down on Bankside, is a clear uh, kind of monument or or indication uh, that this idea of the public uh, is somehow... Uh, what the art world still necessarily thrives on, or rather needs, requires uh, for it to uh, continue to operate with some idea of its uh, cultural uh, purpose. Now, this is a, a bit of a... Uh, it's a, it's a in a way, it's a slightly uh, peculiar situation. The spectacular aspect of contemporary art it cannot be denied, in the sense that as we have institutions that become more and more... Uh, globally connected and speak more and more to each other on a global scale, they also necessarily uh, need to, for some reason, need to draw in more and more of us. That's to say they need to produce spaces and um, uh, machineries of presentation like uh, this extraordinary uh, Death Star-like building which is going to be uh, plonked on the side of the the current Tate Modern. Uh, which is there to welcome us in to that growing spectacle. Uh, now, what is it that uh, we get from it? And when I say we, this is a, you know, partly the, the problem of being a, an editor and a writer and a critic, as well as being just an ordinary person who needs to f- work out why it is that they're doing, looking at what they're looking at, and why what is being presented to them is being presented to them in the way it is. I mean, for me, part of this image which is, again, this building is largely funded with private money, um, relates to the kind of notion of the, st- the role that the arts play in society. And I think certainly the British government now wants us to believe that a lot of private individuals are handing over large chunks of cash to institutions like Tate and saying, here's some money, spend it. Um, when in actual fact what's going on is that these people are saying, here's some money, I collect, I don't know, let's say Lebanese art, um, it'd be great if you could use this money to start collecting it too. Which I think, I mean, this image is particularly weird because it is so uninviting and so closed and secretive about what's going on inside, which I think in some ways mirrors the struggles these institutions are going through in terms of transparency. Mark, Mark is also a bit of an architectural critic, so <laughs> that was a real insight as far as I'm concerned. Um, I never thought of that myself. I just thought it looks like the Death Star, but not round. Um, but um, so that actually, so if we're going to break into conversation there, that which would be nice. I'm enjoying this. Um, 
That means what? That means what is it about this public that needs to be sort of brought in, but at the same time not quite kept out, but kept under control? What is it, actually, the question for me is, what is, the, what is it that the art world is now doing? What is contemporary, do, contemporary art doing um, in terms of forming the idea that it needs to form a public? What does it do? What is it doing in culture, in society at large, now, today, uh, with regards to uh, shape, the values that it instills in shaping a public? I mean, when we say this, we think about certainly a, a hundred years, 150 years of a changing history of the institution of presentation. The big, mu- the big 19th century museums or the early 18th century uh, formations of art academies and art, muse- art collections and art museums, which were directed towards the public, uh, were there to promote the edification. I mean, the, the, the big 19th century narrative, narrative for art museums is to edify and to educate and to elevate at some, in some way the broader public. At a time when the notion of the public, uh, the, where the experience of the general public was uh, quite dynamic and chaotic and full of conflict. So the idea that fine art, as it was then called, uh, could improve people who might uh, not uh, be as good as what uh, ruling class people uh, thought they should be was part of the system and the function of, of the original art institutions. Uh, but today we have a slightly different thing, or do we? Do we now have a, an art world? This is something which I'm constantly turning over. Is the art world going back to um, uh, an, an, a sort of neo-19th century form where it is about... Uh, instructing the public in what exactly? What is it that it wants to communicate and to instill and to project onto this ever-expanding general public, which for some reason is also itself increasingly attracted to this cultural form, right? Because that's also the flip side of this. We are... You're all here because you're interested in the idea of contemporary art somehow, um, in a way which maybe uh, 20 years ago would not have been the case. I'm just going to push this along. Okay. You've got no answer to that, Mark. I do. Well, I would say that one of the things it's trying to push in... Well, maybe I can say that... I mean, I'm based partly in Vienna, and there there was an incident not so long ago where the director of the Kunsthistorische Museum, which has part of the Imperial Collection, was complaining about still having to show this stuff to the public on the grounds that basically, because it was the Imperial Collection, it was essentially private and something that the public didn't have any rights to be a part of. Whereas here, I think, at an institution like the Tate, increasingly there's an idea that it's okay for them to take foreign money and collect uh, art from where that money comes from on the grounds that London is a multicultural city and Tate's job is to encourage and reflect that. Okay. Reflect and, and encourage a culture which contains things like this, right? Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't own that. But no, no, no. But Paul McCarthy, inflatable turd, um, <coughs> was on show in Hong Kong, actually very briefly in May this year, because the high winds went, they had to take it down just as quickly as they put it up. Um, when you buy it, it comes, I think, with six fans that allow you to install it quickly as well. Um, but again, it was what, what does a Paul McCarthy giant turd tell people in Hong Kong about art, which is one I'm going to throw back at you. 
Well, I mean, that's, I guess that is the, for me as a sort of uh, moralist, and uh, I don't, I'm not a conservative, but um, I'm certainly not a conservative, but I, I am curious and concerned about the nature of uh, the radi- radicalism or um, the idea of a confrontational aspect to contemporary art, um, which actually somehow doesn't kind of uh, meet its own brief, or rather it doesn't seem to me that art even of this type is radical anymore. There have been, we have, you know, if you're at art college you learn a sort of hundred year history at the very least of a kind of progress of the avant-garde which had some relationship to contestation, to uh, critical um, retort to a an establishment position or an academic position or a conservative cultural position. Um, and since the 70s and 80s, or certainly since the beginning of the 90s, some of that kind of, um, that energy of the radical and that energy of the, uh, the avant-garde has turned into something quite different, which is a kind of uh, sort of em- slightly empty or, or, or emptied out gesture of... Um, Negation of all possible uh, values. Now, this is an interesting. I mean, this is a fairly heavy issue for me in terms of the kind of theory of uh, the politics of art. But to inflate a turd uh, of this magnitude uh, and to put it in Hong Kong and to put it anywhere really um, doesn't quite have the kind of the same bite as maybe Paul McCarthy's early work did. And I I would argue that when someone like Paul McCarthy was making his work originally in the, say, uh, 1980s, uh, there was a different kind of politics of confrontation at work in the world of contemporary art, which is to say that if you look back then, you notice that artists who are now very established were seen as um, uh, confrontational uh, Towards or, or in opposition to uh, a kind of a notion of conservative culture, a notion of moral culture, a notion of tradition, uh, a culture which was based in uh, questions of or positions of moral, uh, ethical, and social propriety. Now, for some reason, this is acceptable, right? I'm not saying it should be unacceptable, but I'm, what I'm saying is it's interesting that these kinds of works and this kind of attitude which, of course, someone like Damien Hirst has, uh, you know, well exploited for a long time. Uh, but that kind of attitude of a kind of empty gest- an emptied gesture of um, negation, of, of, being, of producing a negative to all kinds of possible positives, um, is what actually seems to motor uh, much of the production of contemporary art, particularly at the kind of... Um, High-level, you know, high-level presentation that we see uh, in big museum shows and so on. I'm not saying that they are as uh, ugly and as um, sort of futile as, as things like this, but I think that there is a kind of positioning of a kind of pluralist, or there's a, there's a form of pluralist um, skepticism about any possible uh, cultural value that actually seems to be the, de, the, the, the kind of de facto or, or default position for this um, this thing, contemporary art. Now, to come, you know, it doesn't mean that people don't believe in what they do as artists. It doesn't mean that the the, the ideas that they come up with aren't necessarily supposed, you know, uh, positive ones. Um, but there is a 
interesting thing about the plurality and the uh, relativist aspect of positions in the art world, which means that, in a funny way, the art world now becomes this place which, uh, where the governing value is to accept all things. So, multi, you know, the, the idea of a, a multiculturalist uh, art world, the one which is established all around the world and shares that same ethic or that same, same, morality, that same idea, um, the idea that that art world is about saying that everything is relatively, is equal to everything else culturally, uh, is an interesting one because it, does, it suggests two things. It suggests, well, it suggests, first of all, that this is a, a functioning and useful value, cultural value to have everywhere you go. It suggests that it's a good thing to have um, a culture which accepts difference, which accepts uh, pluralism, and which necessarily, because of that, accepts uh, that you have to uh, that you have to accept that you don't like it in a funny way. But it also can act as a shield for um, societies in which all those freedoms don't exist. Yes. To project the image that they do exist. So again, Qatar could be a good example. This summer they um, had an exhibition of classical Greek sculpture, and which was a sort of, I guess, intergovernmental exchange, um, and returned six of the sculptures because they were male nudes. So you're saying that there are limits to tolerance um, in that kind of context? Yeah, but also that the art can be a shield for intolerance because you allow someone to shit on prime real estate yeah. um, that doesn't mean that the people who live there can actually do it no, no that's certainly, a, that's certainly a, a, a key point also about the, I think what, I guess what, what we sort of are skirting around or, or I'm certainly kind of starting to think of more and more is, uh, and I think LSE students will probably be much better at this than me which is uh, a theory of the politics of uh, nationhood partly I mean, you know, this is a place where this kind of issue is debated all the time and uh, people are very uh, expert and uh, scholarly about the development of uh, international relations, the notion of uh, global economies, um, of global economic relations, and at some point the uh, falling apart or the unraveling or the uh, disappearance of uh, an old nation-state world. Now, I wonder whether... um, that has something to do with this, that we have uh, a kind of... When we say global, we talk about a kind of... We're not talking international. It's something I was trying to write about in the current issue, which is what is the difference between the international and the global? And that's quite a key issue because the difference is something to do with the difference between uh, what it means to be a nation-state with your with a, an internal culture or, or the mechanisms by which you develop a national culture and a different set of a different set of circumstances where culture f- flows between uh, centres, which are themselves somehow slightly separated from their national context. And I think that kind of idea of the plural or the uh, relative is really quite important there because it's almost as if, and I'm making a sort of, I'm trying to have an argument here. It's almost as if the uh, the idea and the theory and the kind of discourse of, say, uh, multiculturalism or cultural difference and cultural identity, those kinds of discourses have become the 
language through which the whole of the global art world uh, recognizes itself. So the point about uh, institutions like the Tate um, basically turning into these enormous uh, vacuum cleaners for art uh, on, a global, on a global scale, that's to say they establish uh, patron panels and, collect, and uh, international patron panels who will advise on who from every region in the world they should have in their collection. The fact, that, the fact that that happens at the Tate and that it happens in every other big Western institution and now in big non-Western institutions tells you something about um, this, w- the way in which pluralism uh, and cultural uh, multiplicity seems to become the kind of um, the the raison d'etre or the defining kind of de- genetics of the global art institution. I mean, I don't know if that's way off the mark. I mean, and maybe from a sort of real example, um, I was having a conversation recently with the director of a very large public museum in New York, who was telling me that um, art only really happened in New York and London. Berlin was trying, but would never have enough money to make it happen. Um, LA was trying but had too much of a Hollywood obsession to make it happen and then in almost the same breath he told me that his museum was funded by um, people from the Emirates the German industrial belt in Switzerland Hmm. which I think is the kind of underlying multiculturalism we're seeing in art so this might be a good moment to move on this is in Doha again an artificial island created to house a museum for which the architect was encouraged. I.M. Pei was brought out of retirement um, by a lot of money um, to make one last magnificent work. Um, This is the cover of a powerless. Um, It's an artwork by a Thai artist called Rikritur of Egypt and a French artist called Philippe Pereno. Um, And there's something... I think a comment particularly from Rickrit on what's happening as a result of this global art world. Um, it's going to just cycle through these 100 most influential people in art. And we thought we wouldn't bother to tell you who they were because it's probably not important because they don't care that you know that. Um, but they're a mixture of collectors and curators, very few artists, um, also very few critics or theorists, but people who transfer money and art as a commodity around the world. This is the, the number one, by the way, this year. We Sheikha al Mayasa, who we heads the Qatar Museum's authority. We won't tell you who she is. We just did. Okay. Um, I, we're gonna, there's one last point, which I want, or one last question, which I want to, I've got on my list, which I want to put in there before we open it up, because we've been talking for a while. Uh, and it is the last question on the uh, little blurb which accompanied this talk um, which is uh, well what can artists hope to achieve in all this Uh, and as Mark is the editor who cares passionately about what particular, well specific artists in a way which maybe I I feel sometimes more distant from and uh, and I'm more happy looking at bigger trends without touching too much on specific artists. This is a really live question. We've talked a lot about a big, big system and we've partly cynically hinted at the way in which artists 
are, have become part of that. And the question is, well, okay, well, what does art do, or what does the artist do now in this thing? Now, I'm not sure I have any answers. I wonder if you have some um, thoughts on that. Thoughts, but not advice. Yeah. Um, I think it, you know, it's a question, if you want to be successful as an artist today, I mean, financially successful, and by being financially successful, successful in terms of your reputation and impact, you need to sell a lot of art to a very small group of people. Um, who visit a very small group of galleries, whose private commercial galleries are increasingly becoming very close in size to institutions. So on the one hand, you have to operate in that small world and make your art accessible to people from all over the world. Um, And therefore, perhaps, a cynic would say, totally empty of any specific meaning whatsoever. Or you forego that world and make art that has very specific relevance to specific issues and specific contexts and narrow your market um, and then exist in a world where perhaps you have a lot of reputation but not much influence because you won't get shown in public institutions if you don't have significant benefactors. Do you think that... um do you think that the, the public is, has ever been, the idea of a general public has ever been important in that respect, in the sense that what, well, what can artists do, who do they do it for, and what influence do they then wield by doing what they do? I think there's... Has, there, has it ever been, I guess what I'm saying, has it ever been something which ever did change anybody's ideas about anything at a bigger, on a bigger scale in terms of the public? I think sometimes it's a process by which the changes that are happening anyway in society can be examined and reflected faster than in other mediums. Okay. Um, I'm going to... You want to go specific on that? Well, no, I think I'm going to come back to some of these points, but I think uh, we've spoken for 45 minutes non-stop in a very loose way. Uh, so I think we should be chaired... Uh, and I think we should open it to to you. Do we have mics, or is it... Do so we just stand and shout? Oh, no, we have mics. Um, we do have some uh, roving mics. I'm going to use my <coughs> chairperson's privileges to ask a question first. Um, and you've both skirted around two essential observations, which, you know, if you work in the industry, I think it's hard to ignore. The first is that there's an anxiety or like a self-loathing that is rife within the industry and the market is that, especially amongst artists at the top end, is that their work no longer has an intellectual value but it's it's just about money and they're making baubles for rich person's walls. I'd like to contrast that with the observation that I think on the one hand, on the, the other hand, public institutions in the UK are arguably lag quite a long way behind American institutions in terms of their relationship with private money and their culture of private and individual giving, which means that they are not short of money, whereas a lot of UK institutions are very short on money. How do you reconcile that, or do you have any thoughts? I mean, I think if you take someone like London, there's partly a geographical issue to it. Because I think the way that art institutions and commercial galleries are set up in the city, very much in the centre, around the Thames and Mayfair, um, and it's 
In, in Germany, you call kind of project spaces or not-for-profit spaces off spaces. And in London in particular, um, and I'm going to put it out there that if it's not in London, it's not quite so important in the art world. Um, but that's just the reality. It's not something I wish for. Um, but the off spaces or project spaces in London are geographically remote from the major museums and the commercial galleries. So there's a structural thing in that that seems to suggest they're going to be designed to attract different audiences. If you go to other cities, those not-for-profit spaces or even like underground bars that exhibit work but don't have a liquor license are much more geographically proximate to the commercial centres. So I think here, that's one of the big differences in London. And it suits a lot of people that it's like that. Um, in terms of baubles and uh, the very well-off, uh, I'm always a little cautious to point only one finger at the supposed um, the supposedly sort of degraded culture of the ultra-rich spending millions and millions of pounds or dollars or whatever on uh, these uh, particularly sort of vapid objects. Um, the reason I, I dislike that kind of uh, slightly one-sided rich bashing kind of attention to contemporary art is that I think it's important to recognize that uh, the public uh, sector or the state or the public institution has uh, an enormous role to play in that too. In fact, it has a, a, perhaps a much more significant role um, in, the, in the kind of dynamics of the art world than necessarily these high-profile purchases by high-profile big-money collectors. I, mean, I guess what I mean by that is that um, there are actually collectors who spend a lot of money on things which nobody cares about. And in 10 years' time and in 20 years' time, those things will be not worth very much. Um, uh, and so what, uh, one, one end of the art or one part of the art world spectrum is this rather kind of um, excessive um, and exuberant sort of uh, splurging of cash on things which is vaguely ridiculous. But the greatest part of it is a much more subtle uh, process of um, dialogue between private collectors and private money and public and what are importantly sort of public institutions. They might be privately financed like in America or they might be publicly financed uh, like in the UK and in other European countries. But the important thing about that, that is that they are in the, jo in the business of producing a public for art. It's quite an important distinction. And what's interesting uh, at the moment is how many private collectors are starting to shift away from a rather sort of uh, banal and dated model of very public, very um, uh, flamboyant <coughs> buying of stuff into something which is a lot more sophisticated, which is actually establishing uh, public venues for not only their collections, but actually their money in a funny way. Because a lot of there's no there's actually a shift away from the idea for, of the collector of things to the wealthy per patron of that produces who produces things to happen. I think that's quite an important thing for me. The uh, the, the, the idea of the public institution is not just a public you know it's not just a public purse. It's the private turning its wealth into something which is publicly legitimate. One of the people on this list is Maya Hoffman, who's got a huge, uh, has huge resources at her disposal. But what she's doing is, is putting a, you know, is it 20 million euros 
into uh, a place in the south of France, a whole complex of, of uh, buildings uh, where, peop- where artists will go and do things. I mean, not make stuff necessarily, but come up with ideas, produce uh, projects, produce, uh, curate shows and so on. And I think that's, that's a really important distinction. And we're starting to see in Britain. We're starting to see a lot more of the private uh, patron turning their resources to different ends. Now, the key thing there is that it's the ends that they're turning it to is to make their presence, their legitimacy, and their reputation, and their status, a public matter, rather than something which they keep quietly to themselves. Which is what a lot of you know very big collectors used to do. Yeah, but on a cynical view, would be that they're often slightly lonely people. They're slightly what? Sorry? Lonely people. They're lonely people. Yeah. Who, who need to have friends. Or they, or they could be very ambitious people who want to plug themselves into a power network. I mean, I suspect that if, if you don't have to be too smart to kind of recognize that someone like Roman Abramovich doesn't just go around, you know, supporting, buying football clubs and buying loads of art just because he likes football and art. He does it in order to uh, plug himself into, uh, so, you know, social institutions that will enhance and secure his power and his position. I think. Anyway, who would like to ask a question? Yes. Over here. Yeah, two, two points. Um, basically, they relate to bark buying and bark production. You use the term, the phrase vacuum cleaner in relation to Tate Modern, and that immediately made me think of Charles Saatchi and his bark buying and the way that he's affected the art market. I mean, how common in the art world are people like that? And then bulk production brings me on to Damien Hurst, who managed to have that extraordinarily successful sale at Sotheby's a week before the crash. Uh, all happened while he was drinking in a South London pub. And um, I went about 18 months ago to the exhibition of his dot paintings at Gagosian's Gallery at King's Cross. I came out seeing dots. And um, bulk production, basically he employs 50 people. I mean, how much of it is actually Hearst, and are his works really now, I mean, passe, past their shelf by date, uh, and devalued because of that? Should we take a few questions? We, I, I'd love to kind of come straight back, but maybe we take one or two questions. There's one lady over there with her hand. I don't know, two or three? So again, this is sort of a two-part question, sort of hogging oh, the mic. But sure. mine was back to the public institution um, and in an entirely, I, I suppose, sort of moral way. Um, what responsibility do you think it is of the public institution to curate a collection of art that's representative? So that's concerned with um, redressing historic um, underrepresentation. African art we've seen recently they're looking to bolster their collections retrospectively what responsibility do you think of it it is of a public institution to do that and how much do you think the agenda of um, uh, corporate corporations or rich collectors might be aligned to that um, and the other sort of on the other hand 
Um, how much do you think it is inevitable that the job of a public institution is to educate and to edify the public to accepting whatever the popular how much do you think they inevitably develop an acquired taste for what was monetized effectively they're not curating they're just representing what was big in the market at the time yeah makes sense okay. Two's um, fine. Two's fine. Let's, okay, two hands for another round. Three. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's do these two first. Mark, go on then. So, bulk production. This is the first question. Can everybody hear us? Can everybody hear Mark? Mark, you're going to have to point that mic right at me. That's okay. Yeah, exactly. So, bulk production was the first question. Yeah. Um, and bulk buying. Um, I guess artists have used studios for a long time. So it's just a question of degrees to some extent. Um, and I don't think people are interested in, say, Damien Hurst's spot paintings really expect his hands to have touched everyone other than to sign it. Um, personally, I, that goes into sort of issues of authenticity as well. And um, part of me feels that in some ways we're beyond that. I mean, culture in general after industrialization is beyond that too um, so for me I'd, certainly on a personal level I don't think it's a particularly big issue because you know that's the case it's not hidden It's not. he's not pretending that all of them are painted by him he used to have the system with the spot paintings where none of his assistants would be allowed to spend more than a certain amount of time working on a certain type of painting in case they became too possessive of it he'd shift them around so you know, it's all done in a way that would kind of negate um, other people's hands. In terms of bulk buying, um, I think that doesn't happen quite so much anymore because of the expanded nature of the market isn't so dependent on one or two collectors. Um, and I think when Saatchi was doing it, certainly that there weren't so many commercial galleries in London and there certainly weren't that many collectors who came to London or were in London so I don't think that really happens so much and I think art galleries are sort of very interested in protecting the interests of their artists and allowing one individual to own the majority of your work isn't very safe should you get tired of it do you want to say anything? Um, I think I agree with Mark that um, bulk production is, is the bad conscience of the art world right? or bulk production is the bad conscience of, of art making, which is to say that in fact everybody wants to produce as many every artist wants to produce as many things that can be sold as possible because there's a very big market and a lot of people who want those things. Certainly when you get to a certain level of reputation uh, demand basically outstrips supply uh, and the art world uh, or art, the, the art system in which artists work when it comes to th making things uh, doesn't handle uh, the supply side very well or rather it has had to set up a situation where it's okay for artists to produce what are effectively are serial objects now when we look at when you see uh, Lady Gaga doing her pop video nobody really questions uh, whether the mark of the artist, as it were, uh, is present in that pop video. 
Uh, mass culture is perfectly happy to deal with uh, the mass production of identical artifacts. The art world has a bit of a problem on its hands because it really likes uh, to be a mass culture and it knows and it has a mass audience even at the level of collectors. That's to say that because as art stars, as artists become art stars, everybody wants a bit of what they do and it doesn't matter too much what it is as long as it looks like what it is that you think you want. Um, so for me, the, the serial production thing is actually, I mean, I think you know, people like Hearst are pioneering in as much as they kind of make the point that uh, well, you want one, here's one, you know, here's another one, here's 20,000 of them. Uh, I haven't made them, they're, you know, uh, they are, they're available to satisfy more or less the kind of demand that will tolerate the prices asked. Uh, in terms of bulk buying, in a way that the bulk buying is, has turned on its head, instead of single collectors buying out single artists, that may have been a phenomenon uh, in the past, um, you do have a kind of bulk buying in the sense that many, many collectors want to jump onto a particular artist's bandwagon at a particular moment, but I don't know, don't know if that's the same thing. With regards to that, I'm not, I'm not sure it's quite the same point. Um, I guess most artists are geared up to supply. Yeah. And the form- I think the bigger question might be what happens when these artists are producing works using the same factories or fabricators which end up producing the same type of works with the same type of finish. Um, and I think that's, that's a different issue that, that is probably more of an issue. Um. But I think, you know, I think it, there's definitely, it's definitely the case that because the mark of the... That, you know, the idea of an artist making something is relatively, you know, directly, as it were, rather than, um, you know, commissioning it, uh, is very, very gone as a, you know, simply not an operative... Uh, concept for a lot of people um, you, have a, you do have a situation where it is a, a kind of it is mass production without calling itself mass production that's all the only, the only important point is that it's mass production that has, has <coughs> excuse me has a self-imposed limit on it and that's interesting in as much as if you look at the way in which design um, economy has de- economies have developed over the last 20 years, you have, a, you have an idea of the niche and the exclusive, right? So it's possible to buy a toaster for £6. It's also possible to buy a toaster for £250. They both toast bread. But the important point is that one is highly designed and has great specifics to it, uh, which you'll love. It'll have certain kinds of handles and um, buttons that uh, feel just right to the touch and so on. And it's that level of uh, exclusivity uh, in a what is effectively a mass-produced commodity that produces a certain kind of uh, cultural niche uh, for a thing. In a similar way, I think that you know the art, the art object, when it's sold by the contemporary artist nowadays, uh, is gauged to be uh, just limited enough, but uh, not so rare that it can't be bought. Um, I mean, with regards to the, the, the point over there, um, with regards to you know, the, the responsibilities of the public institution, um, I'm, I'm kind of... I'm skeptical of the idea that public institutions have a responsibility to, uh, first of all, plug holes in their um, collections, and secondly, to to edify the public. I think uh, one of I, the things you have to start with is that all these public institutions were founded on private collections, certainly in London. Yes, and so this, but this pressure to, to, to take the public as, as some kind of... The, as some kind, some re, in some way, the... Um, the the reason for these these institutions to exist is is 
complicated. I mean, I guess the, the thing, the point about plugging holes. Okay, every every large museum in every in every country in the world should have a completely comprehensive uh, representative collection of artworks. Right now, in a way, there's a certain kind of uh, homogenous logic to that. That everybody should, ha- you know, have access to all these things. It, it, it also sort of runs away with itself as an idea. Um, so, so what, what, what does that mean? So that every that we basically have art centres, art institutions that will present uh, a kind of encyclopedic uh, form to this idea of what global art basically. Now, where what does what does uh, where does the uh, local or the national or the specific or the kind of uh, the, the kind of impossible to interpret where does that turn up in that I mean is it are we talking about a kind of utopian idea of a kind of world culture and if we are uh, what kind of world culture should that be in terms of um, edifying the public I mean again it comes back to that kind of uh, whether we believe in a kind of 90 effectively perhaps a sort of 19th century model of um, uh, that culture makes you better now I've written you know I've written continuously about the idea that I, my disagreement with a, a kind of certainly a national uh, policy position, which insists that people should go to um, to art galleries because it will make them better people, I deeply dislike the notion that uh, art is a social uh, palliative uh, for problems which are otherwise intractable. Um, so I would, yeah. Commercially. Yes, no, I take, I take the point, but I would... I would, I would yes, uh, of course, what, what is presented in art galleries, art institutions, is by and large what the collectors collect. But I would say that um, it's more subtle than that in as much as you have a situation where artists, collectors, and institutions uh, operate in relationship to each other, and institutions will often buy things that collectors will not, or support things or commission things that collectors will not, because it's not true that there is a clear-cut distinction between a private collector's economy and a public institutional economy, which commissions uh, passively, or rather simply kind of reflects what the private market does. I think it's also, I mean, important to say that I don't think you can dump all this on public institutions, because if there's not a broader discourse in society about art, if people simply aren't used to talking about it, then there's no point that the public institution can't really create everything itself. I mean, I remember when I started writing for a German newspaper about art, having written for some English ones, the first thing the editor said to me, it's not like it is in England, you don't have to treat your audience as retards. Um, <laughs> um, and I think, you know, living abroad now, if there's a public dialogue, I can go to my greengrocer in Vienna and he's got opinions about what's happening at the secession. They may be stupid opinions. Um, they may be profoundly racist, too. But he has opinions because it's something that people talk about. It's something that occupies space in newspapers, TV shows, um, and society at large. Whereas here, I think it's something different. And we've, you know, we've never really had a commis- uh, kind of history in the UK of commissioning public art. The state has never really commissioned stuff. Um, most of it's private subscriptions. Um, and... You know, art's never played a particularly important role in the public sector here. And I think you can't just expect a public institution to change all that instantly. 
Do you have a few more questions? Uh, this lady at the back. Hello. Um, it's kind of going back to what you were talking about just then, but I wondered if you had any uh, predictions for what the recent Arts Council cuts, the effects that was going to have on trends, if any. Um, and more specifically, perhaps, uh, the sort of middle ground of um, NPO organisations and whether that's going to lead to a change in uh, the kind of art we're going to see in the near future. Uh, take one more question before we... This gentleman just there. I'm not very clear, I'm not very clear the difference between science and art. Now, for example, they say that psychology is an art. So one more question as well. Uh, this gentleman just here. Thank you. Uh, you definitely represent uh, one of the leading uh, journals in the contemporary art world. My impression has been that uh, a lot of these publications are relatively closed in terms of opportunities to have uh, one's work covered, in terms of opportunities to contribute as a, as a critic and so forth. And I would like to know how you see uh, you know, this democratic element of giving you know, members of the public or the artist uh, a chance to actually engage more fully um, relate in relation to what your journal is doing. Is it part of what, 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 what you are? Are you thinking about it? Thank you. Go on. Well, the first one was about cuts and the Arts oh, Council. Um, do you want me so to you can do that one. I can do cuts from the Arts Council. Um, I think the, the, you can make uh, funding as big or as small as you like um, in public funding for the arts. Um, the, the question remains, uh, what good does it do then? Um, obviously, there is a kind of move to uh, row back on uh, core funding for arts organisations and an attempt on the part of uh, government to uh, inspire, uh, for want of a better word, um, the uh, emergence of a uh, private sphere of patronage and uh, philanthropy. Now, uh, to, to an extent, it's already happening, and it already was happening, that certainly in London, for example, uh, big institutions are taking larger and larger uh, parts of their income from uh, private donations and private support. Um, it would be lovely to have an infinite amount of public funding uh, for any form of uh, cultural activity. My, my, my qualm, though, is that actually uh, a debate about the, you know, whether that public funding shrinks or increases tends to miss the point that we should have a... That, that tends to miss the real point, which is, well, what is the policy uh, that that funding supports? What are the ideals or the political goals uh, that that funding 
does or does not support. And certainly when public funding was on the increase under the last government, uh, uh, myself and many people were very critical of precisely what kind of art it was tending to be used to produce under the the directives of cultural policy at the time. Now, uh, inevitably, we, we are going to see, and we are seeing, uh, the arrival, the greater arrival of private patronage in arts organisations. Uh, it was already happening anyway, uh, and the fact that the government, current government, is trying to sort of gloss it by saying, "Well, we should have a bit more of this," is all fine and good. Um, uh, but it again also evades uh, any kind of real discussion about. Uh, what all this culture, this art culture is good for. So in as much as I think that there's, that to talk about money is to miss the point that we should have a discussion about what culture is for, that point continues to be missed, right? Um, and what worries me is that uh, regardless of whether it's private or public, you, have a, you tend to have a the continuation uh, of the same old ideas about uh, art being necessarily a good thing that makes people uh, more interesting. I mean, to be honest, at, at Freeze, I went to the talks marathon at uh, the Serpentine Gallery, and Serpent Gallery, Serpentine Gallery gets most, of, you know, the majority of its funding now. I think yeah. is, is private. You know, the, the, the Arts Council's uh, grant to it is is a, is a, is a smallest share of its in, of its turnover. Uh, and to be honest, it, whether it was hundred uh, percent funded or 0% publicly funded, you'd still have Hans Ulrich Obrist doing what he wants to do, right? And what he does is what he does. And the kind of stuff that turns up there is because of him. Um, so you do need to ask yourself, really, well, okay, where, where is, what is the policy of culture and what does it want? It doesn't matter, actually, whether it's private or public, because I think that that really is a debate which isn't being properly had. And I don't believe that just because you have private patrons means that things that... Uh, that good things can't happen. I also, you know, I think, you know, obviously the opposite is also true. But I don't think it's a uh, defining characteristic of the re- the role of the state or the role of the private sector. The second one was art and science. Yeah, art and science. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's very hard, I think, to put a, a clear distinction about what separates them, which is which. Um, I mean, it's probably easy in certain branches of science. Um, but I think art can incorporate um, a lot of aspects. I mean, it relies on technology so much now that it can incorporate a lot of aspects of science and areas in which there's room for speculative thinking. Um, you know, photography, in essence, is chemistry. Um, that's how the process works. Um, so all these things are sort of so interlinked. I don't think it's particularly helpful to split them out. If I was a scientist, I might have... I know from talking to them they have different views. But it's interesting, for instance, in the um, Academy of Science in Germany and in Austria that artists are invited to be members and they have these um, very strange annual meetings between the scientists and the artists where they discuss what's going on in each other's lives. I don't think we do that here. No, no. But, I mean, art and science and art and... um, Yeah, art and science initiatives... Uh, have always been a little bit forced, I find. Um, I think that the underlying issue for me is sometimes I find that scientists are a lot more clear and optimistic about what they think uh, is good about human society, (laughs) right? 
Um, sometimes it's, it's quite a, a lot more inspiring to listen to someone going, well, I think we may have found the Higgs boson, um, than to listen to Damien Hirst say anything at all about anything. Um, and the reason for that is, is something to do with that, you know, in science there is a particular kind of sense of uh, purpose and clarity about, about knowing whereas art has tended to, you know, tended to operate in a kind of part of human society which is much more sceptical or kind of uh, ambiguous about what it means to know things. Now, perhaps... Um, so I would, I would make a bit of a distinction. I would also possibly suggest that um, a lot of the way in which we talk about art treats people as uh, laboratory experiments, um, I don't know what, quite why I'm saying that, but it, it, it strikes me that there is a bit of an issue about, especially in terms of the spectacular aspect of a contemporary art culture now, we tend to, we tend to have, get to the point where we treat the audience as very passive uh, in such a way that it uh, points to a world in which people aren't very important or where actually, in a funny way, human culture or you know, civilised culture isn't... Uh, particularly clear about what it wants to do or where it wants to go. I mean, I, these are broad kind of cultural issues I have problems with, that we tend to live in a period now where even though we have great economic advances and technological advances and scientific advances, this is a broad cultural issue, uh, we tend to be relatively uh, ambiguous and pessimistic about why we're doing all this stuff. And I think in a funny way, uh, contemporary art culture is a very uh, good barometer or indicator of that uh, ambiguity and confusion. Which neatly leads us on to that third question. Um, it was about how publications like ours are closed um, and what role we have in terms of being democratic. Um, yeah. I mean, the easy answer is we have no role in being democratic because we're privately owned, um, ruled by the whims of editors like myself and JJ. Um, I think we have responsibilities to try and see as much as we can and therefore reflect as much as possible of, of, of the art we see. But we all have tastes, too, and the magazine inevitably reflects the tastes of the individuals who curate it. Um, I think both you and I have taught um, in the past a lot, and so we do sort of make efforts to bring in new writers. Um, how the, that works on a global scale, though, is, is, I guess, one of the increasing difficulties, because I would argue strongly, unlike what JJ said earlier, that we're no longer particularly a London-based magazine. So in terms of our senior editors, one's mainly in Berlin, I'm mainly in Vienna, the other one's mainly in Beijing. Um, so we're all trying to fit those different cultures and different zones and different styles of writing together. Um, we have some responsibility, I think, if we're aiming to talk to a general audience to try and encompass everything to that audience might come into co contact with but again we have limited pages and limited space and we're not yet a website um, so I don't think being democratic in terms of how we produce or present the content is a big issue, I think it's precisely the opposite almost, that we're filtering and we're sifting things out and we may run a negative review of something that we don't like but we may also decide not to talk about it at all as a kind of even more negative review in a way. Not that everything we don't cover is done for negative reasons. Take a few more questions. Uh, this uh, lady just here. 
Hey, um, with what you were saying about people working in the field and with our education being so expensive now with a lack of funding, what hope is there for artists working at the present day? And do you think there would be a surge of outsider artists because of this situation? Or will it be the opposite and it will be only artists who have a lot of money who can afford this education? I'm William, I'm a New Yorker, I live in London. So I'll, I'll use the, uh, the occasion of this week's New York Times. There were two articles in the New York Times this week which I thought might be relevant to the discussion today. And it has to do with um, the two, the two uh, faces of what is, about, what is the value of contemporary art. One is the meaning, the other one perhaps the, uh, the more cynically, the uh, auction prices. On the meeting first, because this week saw the death of uh, Professor Danto, my former professor, who famously uh, came up with the idea that um, contemporary art's meaning uh, is its value. Um, so uh, maybe if you have thoughts about how the art world in particular that you guys focus a lot on creates, curates, corrupts, filters that meaning, that would be good. Second article was uh, by uh, a friend of mine uh, writing about the, uh, the Chinese art market, in particular the fact that um, it is incredibly corrupt and filled with fraud. So for instance, in the last several years, um, five, four, three of the top ten most sold artists in the world are now Chinese. You know, the two, uh, two auction houses that no one's heard of in the West, because everyone's heard of Sotheby's and Christie's, but no one's heard of the ones in China. They're the ones making all this, all this auction value. But now we know, based on this article, most of it's fake. So to the extent that money or auction prices is one measure of value, and on the other hand, either Dantolian or some other version of meaning is what the point of value of concept. Yeah, you can just comment on it. Thank yeah. you. Uh, we'll take maybe one more. Uh, this uh, gentleman just here in the red chat. Hi. Um, it's kind of going off what she was asking about art education, but for people who aren't artists who want to work in the field, um, can you just talk about, given especially in the commercial galleries and um, uh, galleries, can you talk about the prevalence of, you know, the severe prevalence of unpaid labor as far as internships goes? Um, I know that might not relate. Really, I don't know if it relates to art review specifically, but um, what options are available for people who can't fit in? Is that an a, a, a intended method of exclusivity, of uh, promoting exclusivity, or, yeah? Are you talking about artists or jobs in the arts uh, in general? Maybe artists who want to get experience in a, music, a gallery or maybe someone who's an aspiring curator or, who, or gallerist. I mean, I don't know, someone who wants to work in the field of some sort. Oof, that's uh, some really uh, strong questions there. And we've got five minutes, seven minutes. Keep it um, short. Keep it short. I, I would dearly love to not pay more interns. 
Um, that's to say, I would like more interns, and we still don't have to pay them. Uh, I think but we do pay them. But we do. We pay them their expenses. Um, and a fee. And uh, do we pay them a fee? Yeah. That's quite good, see. And we're not, um, we're not allowed to call them interns, either. And we're not allowed to call them interns. <laughs> what do I know? I, I don't manage that department. Um, but um, I think that... Um, I think certainly, actually, the way into uh, an, uh, any kind of system is a little bit more kind of dynamic and more kind of unpredictable if there are uh, kind of slightly haphazard ways in. And I think interning and taking any opportunity you get uh, should be uh, just a way of kind of proving your ambition and, break and busting into that kind of situation. Because what I worry about is that everybody is a lot more passive about how they get into the system. And uh, suddenly you have a system where everybody is desperate to get not only a BA, but an MA and then a PhD, because they think that, that is the, those are the entry points to a profession rather than the uh, places in which you develop a certain kind of understanding or a certain kind of calling. I mean, certainly I, don't ha I only have a BA, because when I was at art college, you left from your BA, and you just sort of try to figure it out from there on. And there was no real sense in which you, you, you needed to kind of professionalize. I think it's a really serious issue now, and I think it's a very pernicious aspect, uh, coming to that point about the outsider, uh, that there seems to be you know, no outside to the art system. And I think perhaps that's, that's why we talk about it as the art world. There is a kind of point at which we, we start to think of it as this uh, completely total system in which you, are, you have to kind of work your way in through these very kind of orthodox channels. Now, I think there's a, there's a bit of a problem there. Um, I think it's also important. I mean, it's an, an industry in which you can get a long way by just doing things. Yeah. So if you're a writer, you write things and you send them in. If you're an yeah. artist, you make art and you show it to people. If you show it to people in your bedroom... That's one step before showing it in a gallery. Or you set up a gallery in your bedroom and invite people to come see it. I mean, contemporary art is full of examples of people doing that, less so in the UK, I think. But um, certainly a lot of the young artists that I come into contact with are in the most unusual of places. Like there's, um, there's an artist in Vienna who had a problem where no one was seeing his work and he didn't have anywhere to show it. And he went to study in Scotland and discovered whiskey and then discovered that there weren't any whiskey bars in Vienna so he turned his bedroom into a whiskey bar where he would show his work and people came for the whiskey and saw the work and then his work got better known but there's all kinds of ways around it a lot of them involving just doing it and it's also I mean it's, it's definitely in terms of the point of art education and it's, it's definitely there is definitely a, an overemphasis on the idea that um, professional systems are going to get you somewhere uh, the, the industrialization of higher education is a serious issue because it peddles them, especially in, in art, which actually is, is a kind of anti-expertise uh, type of activity, unlike law or science or somewhere where you actually do have to have a, a kind of consistent body of knowledge. Uh, the art world is not, uh, artists and the art world is not a place where uh, getting endless degrees is necessarily going to make you a better artist. Uh, so there is a kind of black, a sort of, I think, a kind of professional and moral blackmail that is, is peddled uh, in order to support, you know, failing. Uh, higher education institutions, that this is the way into the system, that these are the only ways into the system, and it's not the case. I think what is very interesting at the moment is that we are starting to see the emergence of sort of semi-private or semi-non-for-profit teaching uh, contexts, small, small kind of art school contexts, which are set up by people who actually really want to do them, 
uh, to, do, to teach art in a certain way, to, teach, to bring together students in a certain way, which are completely outside of the old uh, educational sector as it stands in this country. Um, that is, what's interesting is about that, of course it requires resources, it requires people to pay a few fees, but they're certainly not the kinds of fees that you pay to go to college uh, uh, in, the, in the orthodox system. Uh, so I think breaking in, trying things out, uh, and uh, relying on your own initiative and your own uh, guts and, and just sheer bloody-mindedness is what actually set up a lot of uh, younger artists uh, 20 years ago. In terms of meaning and value? Yeah, get to it. Go on. Oh, me? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, I think value is, is something that depends on how you perceive it. To me, the financial value of works of art isn't particularly important on a personal level because I'd never pay that much for them. Um, it can, of course, shape... It gives an artist or an artwork influence having a value because that attracts people with that kind of money who can support the propagation of that art and who have, in the end, a vested interest in the value of that art being maintained. I mean, this is why you have collectors who have, I don't know, so the Mugrabis have about 600 Andrew Warhols because in some respects they can't afford for the market to drop because their assets drop with it. Um, but I'm not sure that has a lot to do with the value of art in the long run, um, which is where I'd say the content rather than the meaning because I think the meaning is a very fluid thing and meanings of artworks change over time and through history um, is something that can be more significant. Um, particularly in an art world today that really wants to rediscover forgotten artists. Okay, um, just to finish off, I think the important thing about meaning is, is a public, is a culture. You don't, make a, you don't make a public and you don't make a culture out of one person. So it doesn't matter that individuals have taste, Right? There's lots of art collectors out there who have dreadful taste but love what they, what they possess. Right? I don't care, and nobody else should care, and as long as we're happy that they're happy, that's all that matters. Um, what matters, though, in, in art, and this is the kind of strange world that we, we navigate as a magazine, is that somewhere along the line, meaning is made uh, at the public level. And that's the key. Value tracks meaning, actually. It's not, people who want to say that it's the other way around um, uh, are liars. Right. In the end, although there are very strange kind of uh, uh, warped uh, uh, kind of aspects to the way in which a, a commercial market in the art world works, or the economy of the art world works, the reality is that unless you have a public that uh, finally decides, and w- what we mean by public has to, is for another debate, but unless you have a public space in which people develop a kind of consensus around what things mean, then they are worthless, Right. And that is where the... Of course, you can have collectors who pump up an artist's value by buying. But in the end and in the long run, uh, it's, a, it's a public that decides uh, what the meaning and the value of, of, of cultural works are. Now, whether they get to do that initially is a different matter. But in the end, um, we are in the place of saying no or yes to things that other people will always want you to buy or to sell or to, you know, to say yes to. We are in a situation as a, as a magazine to form that idea of the public response. Because if we weren't there, all you would have was the facts of what private collectors buy and what public institutions present as being worth it. And you have to have another voice that says something else to that. Um, on the subject of the magazine, I think we're going to draw it to a close there. Um, 
I believe there is a stack of magazines which arrived by courier that may or may not be outside of these doors. So if you'd like one, uh, if they're not out there, come and see us at the end. Um, otherwise, I hope you'll join me in saying thank you very much to JJ and Mark.